Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker, author of Confessions of a Movie Attic, right here at www.blogtalkradio.com. out there. This is Betty Jo Tucker thanking you for tuning in to Movie Attic Headquarters. You don't have to be a movie addict to visit our show, of course, but if you are one, it's definitely the place for you, especially today, because award-winning author, screenwriter, playwright Bill Messy is here to discuss his fascinating book, Real Change, and that's R-E-E-L, Real Change, The Changing Nature of Hollywood, Hollywood Movies, and the People Who Go to See Them. Bill's other books about movies include Overkill, The Rise and Fall of Thriller Cinema, Peck and Paw's Women, a reappraisal of portrayals of women in the period westerns of Sam Peck and Paw, and Idols, Icons, and Illusions, The Movies We Love and Love to Hate, and The People Who Make Them. His screenwriting credits include Road Ends, starring Dennis Hopper, an uncredited work on Brian De Palma's political thriller Blowout, starring John Travolta. And among Bill's other books are The Advocate, an acclaimed World War II drama, and Inside the Rise of HBO, a personal history of the company that transformed television. You know, Bill spent 27 years in various capacities in the corporate communications area of HBO, and he currently serves as an adjunct instructor at several colleges and universities in New Jersey. I'm so excited about this opportunity to talk with our guest, so let's bring him on right now. Welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters, Bill. How you doing, Betty Jo? You made me sound so important. Well, you are important. I, I, it's just so great to have you on our show. And I, I want to thank our dear friend, Pat Olofsson, in San Diego, for letting me know about your wonderful film-related books. You know, I'm reading your Real Change book now, and I have to tell you how impressed I am with, well, your extensive movie knowledge as well as your uh, high-level analytical writing skills and entertaining style. So congratulations for putting all this together. I've been uh, very fortunate that I've had a series of of really terrific mentors, both uh, on the writing side and uh, on the film side. Um, And I I have to attribute it to that. Who would they be? Well, it all starts with a guy named um, Benjamin Dunlap, Dr. Bernie Dunlap. He was my first film teacher uh, when I was an undergrad at the University of South Carolina. And I remember a quote uh, Bernie used to cite. I can't remember who it was who said it, which would embarrass him. But it was a quote, um, I think it was D.W. Griffith, my job is to make you see. And Bernie did that for me. I mean, I had always been a movie fan, you know, ever since I was a kid. Um, but Bernie had that teacher's gift of 
being able to get you to look at something that you've been looking at your whole life and see it in a mm-hmm. whole different light. Um, and and it's the, the the film side of things for me start with him. Oh. Well, you were lucky to have have him as a as a mentor and and to have that influence on you and. You say that you were interested in uh, movies from a child, well, you know, since you were a child. Can you remember when you first, your first movie when that that got to you? Yeah, actually I can. Um, huh. my, my family, um, we were an Italian family, so they did things in mass. And I remember <laughs> yeah. a bunch of us um, going to see The Magnificent Seven. Oh, I would have been uh, about five or six, and I'm squeezed between my mother and one of my aunts. Um, and there was something about the way that the movie was done. Um, yeah. That even as a kid, it stuck with me. It resonated with me, uh, and to this day, it's still one of my favorites. I I can't even imagine how many times I've seen that film. So many times that it's one of those movies where if my wife hears the music from another room, goes, you're not watching that crap again, are you? That many times. <laughs> Your wife sounds like my husband. <laughs> I just want to watch these these old movies that you loved. I I can identify with you. Uh, my One of my first memories, and I've told this so many times on on the show, but I, I love to, to tell people about it. My, I just remember being uh, about six years old. Like you said, you were five, five or six. I was six. I remember that I was six, and I remember, you know, hiding underneath a, a theater seat and just peeking around, you know, up at the big screen and seeing Frankenstein on the screen. <laughs> and I, I was so frightened, but I was also just absolutely fascinated. And I've been that same same way ever since. I, and I do love to be frightened at the at the movies. And and it was just it, that has stayed with me. And I do watch you know every Frankenstein that I can. But Boris Karloff is the one that really really got me. It's it's kind of his fault. <laughs> I yeah. That I became a became a, a movie addict. Well, I'm I'm so glad that you that you did get interested in movies. And uh, that you've you've uh, studied film, and I'm very happy that you've written this book, Real Change. I, I just, as I mentioned, I'm I'm really fascinated with it, and so much information in it. Uh, wonderful essays. What motivated you to write? You've written all of these other books. What motivated you to write Real Change? Well, I was, I had been writing. Um essays for a uh, website which is no longer uh, up called um, Sound on Sight and uh, I had lost my job at HBO Uh, I hadn't started teaching yet, it's kind of idle and I saw an an ad for them online somewhere, they were looking for writers and um, they liked my stuff Uh, initially I was doing something like once a week every two weeks and uh, after about two and a half years, I pretty much said everything I had to say, and I'm looking at these essays. I go, there, there must be something more I can do with them. So I called out the best of them, and I realized that I could arrange them in a sort of a chronology, where it would follow um, changes in the movie business, 
And that's, mm-hmm. that's where the book came from. Well, it was it's such a good idea, and I thought I knew a lot about movies, but I just can't compare with the, with the knowledge that that you have and uh, your skill in in explaining this. What what do you think has been the most significant change that's uh, happened to Hollywood movies? Well, for me, because uh, my ground zero is. Uh, 60s, 70s. That's when I come come of age. So to me, that's what I measure movies against, what they looked like then. Um, And what I didn't know at the time was it was an incredibly fertile period in uh, commercial movie making. The studios were financially on the ropes. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of the old management had been shown the door and a lot of new young blood was coming in to run the studios. Guys like uh, John Kelly at Warner Brothers, uh, Robert mm-hmm. Evans, uh, probably the most famous of them because he's such a ruthless self-promoter. But these were guys who really, really loved the movies. Attendance had been on a 20-year slide. So to try to get people back in the movies, they were willing to roll the dice on a lot of new and risky stuff and a lot of new and risky talent. That's, that's yes. the time when all the film brats come in. Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, Francis Coppola, all those guys out of the film school uh, arena. And uh, a lot of exciting, fun, rule-breaking, rule-bending uh, movies got made over that period. The business stabilizes, and ironically, that kills that creativity because the mainstream commercial business goes from being aggressively adventurous to get an audience to being creatively conservatively defensive to keep from losing the audience and the audience changes too you go from what was basically a uh, it was a young audience but it was like college and up by the late 70s 80s it's now like the lower teens So the movies become, for lack of a better word, softer. Mm -hmm. And all of the studios, uh, the big studios, get absorbed by these large entertainment conglomerates. So you're not just looking for a movie, you're looking for a movie that will feed that big machine. And that's the franchise. I ha- I want to mention to you, um, and we'll we'll get back on that. But I wanted to let you know that we have uh, Kat Vecchioni, who's also a host here on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, she was she hosts uh, or co-hosts World Talk Rock Radio, and uh, she is in agreement with you about what you're saying. She says uh, that they are. Holly Weird now, and that's W-E-I-R-D now, no creativity. <laughs> and she says this 3D thing stinks, <laughs> so she's pretty outspoken. But anyway, uh, I, I understand the point that you're making. It's the it's the money that they're after. And, well, they, uh, were, they always were. Um, what's interesting, though, is that the movies that used to make money are movies that now you would really only see coming off the indie circuit. I mean, uh, a really good example is All the President's Men. Now, All the President's Men is about two guys asking a lot of questions and typing. Its grosses put it as one of the top movies 
of the 1970s, not just of its year, but of the decade. An equivalent today would be something like Spotlight. Mm-hmm. Spotlight is a success, but it's a much smaller movie, smaller stars, and it'll be success, successful financially, but at a much lower level than all the president's memoirs because it's a grown-up movie, and it's hard to get grown-ups to the movies. Back then, it was not that big a trick. Right, right. Well, that's a good segue into um, one of the things that I I was really uh, I really learned a lot from from your book when you were talking about blockbuster films. So, of course, my my question to you is, uh, why do you say that blockbuster films ruined Hollywood? The paradox is the blockbuster taught them how to make big money. Uh, Ah. And what they've done is clone those successes ad nauseum. They're, They're a fairly predictable genre. You know, a superhero movie, um a space opera. I mean, look at uh, the reboot for Star Wars. Now, I don't think anybody doubted it was going to make money, although it's, uh, you know, not to take anything away from the film, which is quite good, um, but I don't think anybody expected it to go through the roof the way it did. But on the other hand, it's, it's impressive, but all things considered, possibly not that surprising if you look at the movies that have top the box office, say, over the last 10, 20 years. They all tend mm-hmm. to be over-the-top action films, a lot of effects. Mm-hmm. They're action-driven. They're not life-sized movies, which is neither good nor bad, but um, the way that they monopolize the box office, that is something that happens over the last 20 years or so. Now that's, that's I don't like that trend, at all, and I, you kind of blame in your book, Jaws. <laughs> Am I right about that? That that you did just didn't you say that that was the first blockbuster? Well, being a fan, um, <laughs> I reserve using the word blame, but yeah, because <laughs> um, uh, the money that Jaws earned. If you're under forty today. I think it's probably hard for you to remember that the movies weren't always like this. And when Jaws rolled out, um, first of all, the summer was usually a dump-off time for the studios. That's where you ran your junk, because it was summer. Mm-hmm. Nobody was going to the movies. Everybody was out. So Jaws, Jaws was the only one of its kind at that time. There had been nothing like that before, and it owned the whole summer. It actually started making more money as the summer went on, which is completely the opposite of what happens today. And when the studios got a load of how much money it made, which was unprecedented, we have to do this yeah. again. Then two years later, Star Wars comes out and does That's it again. right. Star Wars was right after right after Jaws. You're, you're right. Right. Jaws is seventy-five. Star Wars is seventy-seven. Uh, makes even more money than Jaws then probably the capper is when Lucas makes Empire Strikes Back. Because prior to Godfather 2, everybody thought of sequels as something you do cheap to make a quick buck. Mm-hmm. Apple approves with Godfather 2, if you invest in it, 
you can actually make a movie as good, if not better, than the original. Then Lucas comes along and takes that up to a steroidal level. He invests <laughs> yeah. more money in Empire Strikes Back than went into Star Wars and produces a movie that does at the box office equally well. And then this cements the idea that there's a template here we can follow that can produce this kind of box office on a regular basis. And then if you look at what starts coming out uh, in the 80s and then especially in the 90s and on, you see them adopting this as a, as a driving philosophy. Big budget, big movies, skewing very young um, because not only will they come to see the movie three and four times, they'll buy the video game, they'll buy the action figure, they'll watch yeah. the TV spinoff. Um, all of that comes out of um, studying what had happened with those couple of pictures and going, we can, this is a repeatable success. Yeah, I I just uh, I don't know whether it's it's going to end, uh, and it's it's kind of discouraging, um, especially if you're a fan of more uh, character-driven movies. And I mean, you'll have some of them, but not not as regular as you as you would have. But I, you know, I started watching movies. Uh, Way back in the nineteen four, mm, I shouldn't say. Yeah. Well, you know, I already said Frankenstein, <laughs> Boris Karloff. So, in the forties, and and we we had a, a double feature every week. It was yeah. it would change, and we had two movie houses right across from each other, and so um, our my cousins and I we would be dropped off on the weekend. Actually, those theaters were our babysitters <laughs> because we were we would we would go to one double feature at one movie, and then there were lots of goodies and popcorn and everything. They gave us you know the money to spend, and then we'd go across the street to the other one and get the other double feature, or we'd go the next you know we would go the next day, and it changed every it changed every week. Every week. Yeah. And now that's that's gone. That's definitely gone. Because of the way, uh, you know, what would you say is the average amount of money that's spent on on making a, a movie, say a mainstream movie, not just a blockbuster? Is it something like twenty million or? Well, I'm trying to find out because I think it's about ten years ago um, the industry stopped releasing that number because it was making them look so bad. But as near as I can determine, including marketing. It's a little north of a hundred million. The really? Ad, yeah, the production cost is somewhere between seventy and eighty, and um, then the marketing costs easily push it over a hundred million. Yeah. Well, I think taking up the slack on maybe character-driven movies, uh, television came along, and uh, I'm I'm really enjoying. The um, miniseries, like uh, that, that are on television, and you get a lot of uh, character-driven stories, and it's kind of like the B, maybe the B movies that were put out, you know, before before television. I I even enjoyed those, and you used a quote from Samuel Goldwyn 
about the uh, influence on TV. I like this quote. It's a certainty that people will be unwilling to pay to see poor pictures when they can stay home and see something which is at least no worse. (laughs) I like like that. But how do you feel about the way uh, television has um, has sort of taken over that type of, of movie making that that we enjoyed so much in the past. Well, there's a, there's a cycle to TV as well. Um, through the 50s, once you get past the, the live drama era, which is mostly the late 40s and early 50s, um, when only people really had a few dollars in their pocket could afford TV. As TV becomes more widespread, you get to the point where everybody has a TV, a lot of television is what you were saying. It's it's replacement for the B-movie. There's a lot of stuff that's just getting ground out. I remember reading that at one point, it was either in the late 50s or in the 60s, one out of every three primetime TV series was a Western. Hmm. And you bubble along like this, some good TV, a lot of bad TV. There's always been more bad stuff than good stuff, whether it's TV or the movies. And you bubble along like this until um, HBO. Now, it doesn't mm-hmm. change suddenly because it takes a while for cable television to find its feet. And HBO really doesn't find its original programming feet until the late 90s. And that's when they roll out Sex in the City, The Sopranos, Six Feet Under, and then you, what you see in shows like that is that 60s, 70s sensibility finding a home. It had lost its home in theaters. But that adult, character-driven, morally complex kind of storytelling finds a home on cable. Yes. And then it begins to expand. Then you have uh, Mad Men and, and uh, Breaking Bad. Breaking a Bad. lot of these right, very, very dramatically dense um, morally layered stories. Now we're in 2016. The audience that was watching uh, The Sopranos and, and First Seasons of Mad Men, they're kind of aging up and out. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing the big cable networks do what the studios did. HBO's biggest uh, ratings show ever is Game of Thrones. Even higher oh, really? Than, yeah, even higher than what uh, Sopranos did. And um, AMC's ratings for Walking Dead, they're monsters. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> that's their, ratings-wise, that's their big show. So even there, you're seeing the same cycle begin to repeat. You can make the case that the kids that were going to the big action escapist movies of the 90s and the early 2000s are now becoming adults, getting their own cable subscription, and they're taking that sensibility with them. Yes. Well, I I do like to have, <laughs> have that around. I'm kind of hooked on Netflix now, where I can watch, I can binge watch. And Cat uh, <laughs> Becchioni in the chat room, she says that The Sopranos was the bomb, and so is Game of Thrones. But she's a little upset about the price that she had to pay for the uh, the new uh, daytime matinee for Star Wars, and it was eleven dollars 
to get in. So that says something about um, how people are feeling. A lot of people about the how much it costs to go to the movies nowadays. I mean, we the so many people can't afford can't afford that. And when when did the prices start skyrocketing to go to the movies? As those big, expensive movies start rolling out, that's mm-hmm. when the prices escalate. <clears throat> right now, your movie theater makes almost nothing off one of those movies. Really? The, studio, the studios, um, in the old days, it used to be a 50-50 split between um, the exhibitor and the distributor. Then these movies started getting more, not only got more expensive, but there started to become more of them. You know, when you go into the summer, one of these behemoths comes out like every weekend. So you really only have a couple of weeks of good earnings. And if you have a movie that costs $150, $200 million, and the rule of thumb is that a movie has to gross two to three times what it costs to break even. Wow. So they say, you want our movie, fine, but here's what the split is. And sometimes it's not a split. The first week may be 100% or 90% going to the distributor. And then it'll fall off, but by the time it starts to tilt in the exhibitor, the theater's favor, the movie stopped earning big money. The movie is there to get you into the theater to go to the snack bar. That's where they make their money. (laughs) Got to have the popcorn. (laughs) Definitely. Which is why, of course, you you got to take out a mortgage to buy a tray of snacks, because <laughs> that's where they're they're actually making uh, their bigger money. Oh well, <laughs> well, with the with the the price of going going to a movie, it it does make uh, the uh, Netflix <laughs> watching cable. <laughs> I mean, I know. Uh, make. Yeah, it makes it uh, it makes it quite quite uh, tempting. You know, our uh, time is really going by, and I I don't want to pass up the opportunity bec- uh, to talk to you about uh, one of the essays in your book be- about uh, Oscar winners, and uh, because we're we're going to be facing the 88th Academy Award ceremony next Sunday. I'll be glued to the set and watching all all my favorites lose. I think, <laughs> but <laughs> but at any at any rate, uh, you have a uh, statement that you make. Why can't an Oscar winner look more like a hit? Now, what what is that all about? The um, what triggered me writing that was uh, I had actually read a couple of articles uh, that were about that if you added up all of the earnings for most of the Oscar winners in a given year, mm-hmm. um, they're not that impressive. I mean, they tend to be smaller budgeted movies, so it's not like those movies aren't making money. But in terms measured against the movies that make a lot of money, they look kind of pitiful. Yeah. If you go back to my era, or um, to hit this a little gently, possibly your era, <laughs> you, don't see that kind of a, you don't get to see that kind of split. It, it was almost like no. the, the movies were one pool. You were making movies for everybody. Yes. And um, what it took for a movie to make money wasn't exclusive of what it took to make it good. 
Mm-hmm. As you get into this blockbuster thing, blockbusters, the big ones, the really big ones, there are inherent limitations on them. For instance, you can't kill Batman. You can't no. kill Spider-Man because you know right. they're coming back. So there's a, a, a limit to the amount of drama you can put into something like that because it's the plot flow is almost preordained. Some of these things are almost ritualistic. So you right. can do it really well. On the other hand, there's a cap on how far you can take the form, and that limits your creativity. Uh, uh, maybe creativity is the wrong word. It limits the artistry you can bring to it. You can't... I think the example I gave, if I remember the essay correctly, was talking about Casablanca. Mm-hmm. You can never make Casablanca today. He doesn't get the girl. Um, uh, she winds up going back with her husband. Um, it has a sad ending. Um, or um, from my era, uh, I think of a movie like uh, The Wild Bunch, where they all die. Yeah. No way you can make that. Spoiler alert, people. <laughs> yes. You know, it's, I figure I can get away with it. It's 40 odd years old. Um, or even The Magnificent Seven, you know, which was a nice, really well done mainstream Western. But uh, And I won't say who's who so that there's some suspense left for the film, but a number of the leading characters die. You know, it's kind of, a, at best, a bittersweet film. You mm. can't do that now. First of all, they all have to come back for the sequel. Yeah. Well, I was looking at the uh, list of eight nominees for best picture this year the the big short brooklyn mad max fury road the martian the revenant room bridge of spies and uh spotlight and it looks like um well mad max made a lot of money and so did the martian and so did the revenant and And those um, are the three expensive ones too yeah and the and but room was very uh, character driven. So was Bridge of Spies, and Brooklyn to me, which is my favorite one. I I know it doesn't have a chance to win, but it's Beautiful the old movie, classic. Yeah. It's the old classic type of movie with character development and story, you know, really compelling storytelling. So um, some of the things that you're that you're mentioning, yeah, why. Uh, Okay, room it wasn't a hit. As far well, as if we call a, a hit, hit on, the, on the scale of of something like The Martian, I mean those, the the big ones that you mentioned there, those are all big studio films. The right. impressive thing is that the, the, the big studios are turning out anything that good, um, which I think is a positive sign. Um, yes, I think but, it's better uh, than. Better than in than in the in years you know in years before I think yeah. people have seen some of these movies they have actually seen some of these movies that are that are being uh, that are nominated and it'll be interesting to see see what uh, what wins. Well, you talk a lot about classic movies and you mentioned Casablanca and uh, what do you think makes a classic movie? Classic, or makes a, <laughs> makes a movie classic. Well, when you're making it, you don't know you're making a classic. Like Casablanca, they thought it would be a flop. 
Um, well, why not? Because it was based on a, on a on an unproduced play. They never had a finished script. Um, from what I've read about it, they were, they were going through rewrites on a daily basis. The the, the cast um, never had a chance to memorize lines. They were actually tacking up pages on the set with their lines. Yeah. So something that chaotic, and, and uh, if I remember correctly, I think Bogart was like their third choice um, for the lead. Really? Um, yeah, he was not first choice, but all the really pretty leading men were off in the service. This was, those were the years of World War Two, And I, <clears throat> I was just uh, doing some research on, um, it was another Bogart film based on the Chandler uh I'm blanking out on the title, but where he plays, um, he's a private eye, and it's Lauren Bacall. The Big Sleep? The Big Sleep, thank you. Mm-hmm. Embarrassing. You're welcome. You forget that. But um, the story is that as uh, William Faulkner and I think it was Lee Brackett was the other writer on it, and they realized that one of the murders is an accounted for. So they call up um, Raymond Chandler, and Chandler tells them, it's right there in the book. Well, we're looking at it. It doesn't make any sense to us. There's a hole here. So uh, Chandler says, wait a minute. Let me look at the book, and I'll get back to you. Then he calls back and says, you know, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) If you look at the reviews of the movie at the time, the reviews are that um, it's a fun watch, but the plot is kind of muddy. It doesn't always make a lot of sense. And over the years, the movie becomes a classic. None of that changes because the plot is confusing. The plot is muddy. But -hmm. you're not aware of it because you're so caught up in the energy of it. The performances are great. The dialogue is sharp. It's this paradox of being a very smart movie that doesn't make any sense. But it's not about making sense. It's about the execution. My point being that classicism, becoming a classic is so unpredictable. Uh, when you ask what makes a classic, a classic is a movie that 10 years later people are still watching it and enjoying it. Oh, I bet Stanley, good. Yeah, a lot I of, like a lot we're of still, still watching Casablanca. Yeah. Time now, uh, though, for uh, a couple of messages from two loyal listeners. And before I, I play these messages... Bill, I'm, I'm going to be uh, spending some time asking you about uh, screenwriting and uh, how Aristotle fits in. in. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk uh, about uh, uh, the qualities needed for a successful screenwriter because we do have several people who listen to the show who are interested in that topic. So, But we're, we're going to hear from Nancy Lombardo and Steve Mendoza now. Hi, comedian Nancy Lombardo here, host of Comedy Concepts, Blog Talk Radio. And when I need my movie fix, you'll know where I'll be found. That's right, every Tuesday at 4 p.m., listening to Betty Jo Tucker on Movie Attic Headquarters, Blog Talk Radio. Show me the funny, Betty, show me the funny. You're listening to... Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker. She's the real deal in what's happening on film. And if you're not real careful, 
you might hear the confessions of a movie addict. So get your popcorn and stay right there in your seat for Movie Addict Headquarters. And now back to our feature. and Nancy for those fun promos and as most of you know Nancy is the hilarious host of Comedy Concepts which airs on Monday and Friday mornings at 10:30 Eastern Time on Blog Talk Radio. It's always such a fun show. Also, don't forget to check out the Mom and Pop Shop show on Dreamstream Radio each Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. It's very entertaining, of course, because the host is none other than Mr. Showbiz himself, George Bettinger. And let's not forget uh, all the diverse shows on the Wacko Network over on Mixler. That's M-I-X-L-R. And we have Kat Vecchioni in the chat room, and uh, she's uh, one of the Wackettes, just as I am. And um, she is with uh, World Talk Radio for for uh, the Wacko Network, but she's going to be hosting uh, Wacko in the morning every every morning, uh, weekday morning. So congratulations, uh, Kat, and we're so glad that you're uh, here with us today. And we've been talking with Bill, who is going to t- tell us a little bit about screenwriting because he's had some experience. Uh, you're on, Bill. What would you like to say about screenwriting, and why do you think Aristotle was the first world's uh, the world's first screenwriter? Well, the answer to the first question is you got to be some kind of idiot <laughs> because it is an incredibly frustrating, um, aggravating. Uh, I can't think of enough negative descriptives for it. It, it, it really is a a um, horrible kind of writing, uh, the kind of stuff that you have to deal with. Um, it got to the point where um, I, 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 there's elements of it I still enjoy that are a lot of fun, and um, but more often than not, uh, if I get offered a gig, no matter how bad a project it is, I'll do it because they usually pay decently. But in terms of creative fulfillment, screenwriting is not going to get you there. Oh, Aristotle, right. first of all, he, he was smart enough to die before movies came along, so he didn't have to put up with that. Um, <laughs> but uh, there was a book um, that, uh, and I cited in in, in my book, uh, that a gentleman wrote about. Uh, Ar- he based a concept of screenwriting on Aristotle's uh, teachings. Basically, to really boil it down. Aristotle was big on character and said this spectacle, what he called spectacle, which was the physical aspect of the production, was the least important. If you look at most big-budget movies today, it's a violation of some of the most basic uh, concepts that Aristotle proposed for storytelling. Aristotle was talking about the stage, um, but in terms of the dynamic of storytelling, that really hasn't changed. He said a story is about people. And a lot of big movies are not about people, or at least recognizable people. Hmm. Not people we know. If you look at a lot of movies all the way up through the 70s, um, you can make a case that... Um, and it was unconscious. It's not like Ben Hecht had read Aristotle. Um, but people automatically in the business 
the standard was you wrote life size. You didn't necessarily write with what was probable, but you did write what was possible. So there may not really be car chases like there are in the French Connection, but most of the French Connection is very probable. Find me a top these days. Good point. I, I, whenever I read Charles Dickens, I think that he yeah. he should have been a screenwriter because he makes everything look so. I mean, when you're reading, you can just see the see the characters and the and the scenes, and that's probably why so many of his novels have been made into movies. I hope you will come back to visit because there's so much more. I would like, and I know our listeners would like to hear from you, and uh, I just am so sorry to say that our time is almost left, almost up. So, Bill, will you come back again? If you'll have me. Oh, definitely. I, we've just scratched the surface, and you've just been such a terrific guest today. And I, I want to uh, thank you, and I also want to give a big shout-out to the folks at Blog Talk Radio for their support, as well as to our producer, Nikki Starr, and to our um, Kat Vecchioni, who was with us in the chat room. She did mention, uh, uh, mention uh, that the World Talk Rock Radio is um, uh, six eight eight p.m. on Saturday, and the uh, morning show is at eight a.m. and that's uh, Eastern Eastern Time. I hope that everyone will come back next time when we'll be uh, ranting and raving about the Academy Awards. It's going to be kind of an Oscar after party, and uh, we have. Uh, some of our favorite guests, we've got film critics Richard Jack Smith, Diana Sanger, and James Colt Harrison. And we have publisher Denise Casino, who will be here because the last part of the show, show will be uh, celebrating the release of uh, my new book, Cinema Stanzas, Rhyming About Movies. So it should be another fun show. In the meantime, don't forget to check out my reviews at realtalkreviews.com. That's R-E-E-L realtalkreviews.com and I want to urge listeners to go to amazon.com and order a copy of Real Change The Changing Nature of Hollywood Hollywood Movies and the People Who Go to See Them it's a wonderful book for movie addicts and uh, uh, you won't be sorry you can get it on um, the uh, ebook style or the or the paperback. Well, that's all for now, folks. Because the Academy Awards ceremony is Hollywood's biggest event, let's close the show with my favorite rendition of "Hooray for Hollywood." Hooray.